Okay, we're going to uh, do a little bit of thought together uh, around this. I think Fran said the last time, last, but we've got another one next week, I'm pretty sure. And um, I think we have. Sam's doing it. But this week, we're looking at another chapter in this series of if you're going to stay, there are good ways to stay within the Christian movement. Sometimes I think we've, even in the last few weeks, we've kind of zoned in on the church or even this church. We're trying to sort of think on a wider level that this sort of Christian movement with all its uh, brilliance, all the good that it's done through the centuries, but also with all of its baggage, um, how does that weigh out for you? And if you're going to stay part of it, what are some of the positive, hopeful ways that you can stay? And this Sunday, uh, I'm going to be looking at a chapter. I'm not going to uh, refer much to the chapter in, in the book that Brian McLaren wrote, but the title is excellent. <laughs> and the title is Reconsecrate Everything. If you're going to stay Christian, reconsecrate everything. I wonder what that conjures up in your mind. I wonder if you have any clue what we might be talking about or not. And the way we're going to do it just slightly differently today is uh, we're going to do a bit of Bible study together. We're going to look at a couple of passages from the Bible and then I'm going to share some thoughts. The bit of Bible study we're going to do together. And again, if you're not used to church, um, I apologize. (laughs) But I also think this is the way that the Bible was always intended to be read. It was intended to be read in community. It was definitely intended to be understood in community. Some of the worst periods of church history is when a few men have got together and said, this is what the Bible says, and and this is the only truth. And it wasn't even that long ago when we look at the big span of church history where people didn't even have Bibles in their language that they could read themselves, that the priesthood uh, were the vessel through which Scripture was interpreted solely. Now all of us got access to the Bible, and each of us can on our own read Scripture and should and say, Holy Spirit, God, what, what is this passage teaching me? What is it saying to me? It's what makes the Bible a brilliant, exciting book. However, the best way for us to understand truth as it emerges in all kinds of different ways is to read it together, to ask others, what do you think of this? So that's what we're going to do together, okay? We're going to read a couple of passages, and all I want you to do is have a chat with some people around you about what did you notice. I've chosen these two passages, obviously, and I think that there is quite a lot of overlap, even though there are centuries and centuries in between the two passages. And I want you to just say anything that you notice that you find interesting, that you question, and anything that you think there is overlap between both of these passages. Is that okay? And there are, please don't sort of think, oh, this is a test. It's just a way of heightening your engagement with it. As, as I rabbit on, you're, you're just going to drift off. I get that. This kind of focuses the mind a little bit because I want you to talk to some people around you. And this isn't a test. And you might sort of think this feels like a really stupid thing to say. It, it, just say it. It's okay. It's a safe place to share. So, reconsecrate everything. I'm going to read you two passages where I think... Uh, these things happen. These are two passages which arguably are amongst the most pivotal passages in all of Scripture. There's, obviously, there's loads of brilliant, amazing stories and stuff that you scratch your head on and stuff that Jesus says that is, that, that is profound and brilliant and beautiful. But there are some moments where history changes within the book. 
And the first one is found in Genesis 28. And it surrounds this character called Jacob. Lots of you will have heard about Jacob. I don't know whether you know much about his story. But um, in, in the most sort of sketchy overview, and then we're going to read some, some verses about it, is he uh, is born, has a twin called Esau, and he's given the name Jacob. And the name Jacob means supplanter, which is a word that we don't really use anymore, but sort of in shorthand means cheat. Cheat is the, the, taking the shortcut taking the easy way, being devious to get what you want. You went forward some years, and again, many of you will know this story about these, these two brothers who couldn't have been more different. One is out in the field, one's more at home. One has a very close relationship with his mom, the other uh, not so much. And Jacob cheats his brother out of his birthright. We won't go into all of that story, but it's an incredible story. And Esau, who is the older twin, basically goes, goes nuts as he would. He's been cheated and deceived out of his birthright. And so the mum says to Jacob, you need to get out of here. Just go. Go to some of my family and we'll, we'll sort this out. But if you stay here, you're going to die. So Jacob goes. And that's the background to this story. And they, he, well, I'll tell you, it come, becomes clear in a minute. That's story number one, okay? So you've got that sort of background in your head, yep. The next story, we go right to the other side of the life of Christ in the book of Acts, where we find Peter, who used to be called Simon, and he is in the, uh, these are the very earliest days of the church. And in the earliest days of the church, and it's easy for us to forget this, it begins within the Jewish community, within the synagogues. And for the first chapter of the Christian, of what we, we might call the Christian community, post Jesus' life, post Acts and the Passover, uh, sorry, the, um, the coming of Pentecost um, and the church starting, it's happening amongst Jewish people. And they are being converted. And it's saying thousands of Jewish people are coming to Christian faith in this first part of the story of the church. And then we read what we're about to read in Acts. So these are the two chapters. Would you fancy doing a bit of reading for me? Jake? Fantastic. And Al, do you want to just come up here for me? Thank you. So I'll give you that one. And Al, if you can read Genesis. So you can close your eyes. I'll put the words on the screen if it helps you to see them. Um, but remember those two scenarios. And the exercise, all I want us to do is reflect. What's going on in these stories? What grabs you? And especially if you can see any link between these two stories that couldn't be further apart, sort of in biblical history, but see if you can find some commonality. Is that all right? <laughs> Great. I'm not giving you any choice, actually, am I really? But yeah, thanks. Jacob's dream at Bethel. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. 
I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Peter's vision. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet, was, the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Thank you. Brilliant. Okay. Two passages, completely different settings, hundreds of years apart. What struck you? What can you see as any commonality? Go. Don't be frightened. Just have a chat. Introduce yourself to other people if you don't know them. And just four or five minutes to do that. That would be great. Okay. I'm going to um, just interrupt you there. <clears throat> so, I, I mean, I hope that just in doing that, you're kind of interest is peaked, that you might go back to it, that maybe during the rest of the day or times in the week, you'll remember these two strange moments. A guy who, you know, lies down on the floor and the most comfortable thing can find for his pillow is a stone. You know, we've all stayed in travel lodges like that, haven't we? And, and, and he has this vision, angels, you know, heaven open. And then we've got this other weird thing where a guy's on a rooftop, vision, something comes down. Both of these times, are right before significant, major changes in direction. But what, what did you notice? Just Let's just have a quick bit of feedback as we kind of string out what, what was in. But do you want to just share something with us? Um, I just think it's really fascinating how 
um, it was completely acceptable for the whole change in direction to happen from not an intellectual idea, but from something that was revealed in a more spiritual or a kind of supernatural kind of way. I, or, or, or even something that felt today we might think is a bit flimsy, like a dream. You know, I, I just think that's really interesting. Brilliant, thank you. Anything else? Um, to be honest, my first reaction in both cases is that when you've got a vision which seems to be benefiting you specifically, is to be cynical. And if someone were to come to that today and say, well, I've had a dream, God's told me this, and it happens to benefit them a lot, I would be very cynical of that. Uh, I was oh, that's a bit loud. Uh, I was just noticing. Um, well, in the, the the second passage from Acts, that's the kind of the moment that uh, it's, it isn't this significant switch where it, it um, the ministry goes out to the Gentiles. Uh, and there's something also in the first passage. Does he? Uh, does God says um, the the entire the world is blessed. What was the exact word? I don't know. The world is blessed through your people. Uh, a couple of things. One is that we never talk much about angels, and yet there's quite a lot about angels in the Bible. And the other thing I suppose that occurred to me is that last sentence that's on there now about uh, I will give you and your descendants a land on which you are lying and where that's led us perhaps today what are the consequences of that brilliant great thoughts let's see another hand so after these two events as people are picked up as to who, who know what kind of happens next is Abraham has already had this covenant the first covenant was maybe the second if you include Noah but Abraham's had this covenant that he's going to be the father of a great nation that's going to outnumber the stars in the sky or sand on the seashore and he he's had a child Isaac Isaac's had a child and they're trying to kill each other this is not a great beginning to you will be a father of a great nation we're only the second generation in and they're already trying to kill each other and yet here in this place in this place that appears to be kind of barren I think that's what the story is hinting at. Otherwise, why grab a stone? Even when God says the, the, the dust, like numbering the dust, this feels like a dusty, barren place. Even there, in a hopeless kind of place, where Jacob, the supplanter, the dishonest guy, feels like a very odd person to be chosen for this story to continue through. That this land is going to be the promised land. We're going to give you space where you will be safe. Your, that calling is upon your life. We then have this other story where there's, there's already arguments within the early church saying about, well, this can't be for the uncircumcised. You can become Jewish and then become Christian, but to become a follower of Christ without that route, that's just not possible because what about all of the laws and what about the food laws and the purity laws? They've got to buy into that before possibly they can come to know Christ. All of this stuff, all of this religiosity. And like Jules said, in a moment that is just based upon a dream, 
a thing coming down. You know, it is the equivalent of the, the, of the vegetarian, you know, coming down and there's burgers and sausages and crispy bacon and God saying, eat. And them saying, no, I won't. And I said, well, if you said so, God, which comes to Pete's point, you know, <laughs> in one sense, it benefits him. In another sense, he's just had this incredible burden put on his shoulders because he doesn't interpret it as, oh, this is just so that I can eat whatever I want. This is a way of him, it's a metaphor to help him understand that this is a message for everybody. He comes down from the, from the rooftop and he welcomes two or three Gentiles into his house. He's got it already. This one vision has changed everything. The other thing that both of these have in common is that there is something about heaven opening and heaven and earth connecting in ordinary places. And what I want us to just wrap up with thinking about is, 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 a, is really a quite a simple thought, but this reconsecrate everything. That the church is supposed to be this place that is able to see beyond what normal sight can see. That actually what I believe happens for Jacob and for Peter is that they get a little moment to see how the world really is. I don't think that they are seeing something extra spiritual. They're just seeing something of the way that God sees the world. The thing about both of these situations is they're both rooted in ordinariness. I think that's what appeals to me. It's not like Jacob goes on this journey, comes into this land and goes, wow, I've never come across this space like this. It's just so beautiful. It's like Eden. It's like paradise on earth. Oh, wow, God is in this place. He comes to this barren place where his head is on a pillow, which isn't going to be the greatest night's sleep, but he wakes up in the morning and says these fateful words. Wow, surely God was in this place and I didn't see it. Peter could have said exactly the same thing. Here we are fighting about who gets this message and who is the grace of God and the love of Christ for. And he has a moment of revelation where he goes, wow, surely God just spoke to me. Surely God was in this place. Something changed. Things do not have to be the way they always have been. That is the message of Reconsecrate Everything. And it's the message of these stories. That when we think that things cannot change and sometimes shouldn't change, we're not thinking in the same way that God feels about the world. In order to make the changes to the, to the systems and the structures, whether they're political, economic, uh, societal, in order to make those changes, or whether they're even within our own club, within the church, we have to do a couple of things. Firstly, we have to name the bad things. We have to name what isn't of God. In Peter's situation, he has to take, have the courage to go against a cultural norm and invite these Gentiles in for a meal with him. That takes incredible courage. In the Bible, it's just underplayed. He just does it. And then he goes on a journey with them. This kind of mixing with the Gentiles was seen, was looked down upon, but suddenly he's changed and he realizes this is a bad thing. There's a, a poem by um, Wendell Berry, who I absolutely love. And it says this. If I can just quickly read this to you. It's called How to Be a Poet, to remind myself. I don't think he's really talking about just writing poems. I think he's talking about what it means to be human. And it says this. Make a place to sit down. 
Sit down. Be quiet. You must depend upon affection, reading, knowledge, skill, more of each than you have. Inspiration, work, growing older, patience, for patience joins time to eternity. Any readers who like your poems doubt their judgment. Breathe with unconditional breath the unconditioned air. Shun electric wire. Communicate slowly. Live a three-dimensional life. Stay away from screens. Stay away from anything that obscures the place it is in. There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Accept what comes from silence. Make the best you can of it, of the little words that come out of the silence, like prayers prayed back to the one who prays. Make a poem that does not disturb the silence from which it came. Wendell Berry often gets quoted in this last line here, there are no unsacred places, there are only sacred places and desecrated places. The word desecrated means to do violence to a sacred place. And quite often in the church's history, we've got a reputation for saying what is sacred and what is profane, what is unsacred. And what this line in this poem, and I think what we're, what we're getting a bit of an image through here, is don't call the things unsacred that I've called sacred. That all, every inch of the universe is mine. And it is sacred. And it is beautiful. Yes, it can be ruined. Violence can be done to it. But our job as the church and as followers of Christ is to bring back, to, de, um, to re-consecrate, to bring consecration, to bring holiness back into situations. And one of the things that Brian McLaren says is that you can't just throw anything away. So this might be something that's annoyed you about the church in the past. It might be something that you're angry about that's going on in the world now. And you go, do you know what? Forget it, I'm throwing it away. And he points to the fact that you can't throw anything away because it's somewhere, it's over there. (laughs) I haven't thrown it away. It's still there. And he says this profound thing where he says, instead of trying to throw things away, bad doctrines, bad understandings of God, bad ways of doing church, bad ways of being a follower of Christ. Let's not pretend we can throw those things away because they need to be transformed. They need to be redeemed. They need to be re-consecrated. And for me, that feels like a much more exciting, interactive, dynamic way of being with God. Rather than everything we don't like in the Bible, we tear those sheets out and we throw them away. They don't go away, but they can be redeemed, re-understood, renewed. All of these images that seem so consistent with the Bible of a God who wants to renew the earth, of a God who is doing new things, who is making all things new. These words are all through Scripture. Not denial of it, not throwing it away, because it doesn't help anybody. And the, the, the ability to do that is what there's a, a theologian called Walter Brueggemann famously said, is to develop a prophetic imagination. And that's what I want you to just chew over. If you forget everything else I said today, I want you to think about what does it look like 
to have a prophetic imagination, the ability to look at something and see more hopefulness than first appears. We used to live in South London, and there was a project down the road from us um, in, in a place called Peckham that some of you will know, where they were trying to raise some money for their charity. And somebody had this genius idea where all over Peckham, down the side of the um, pavement, where on the road, what do you call that bit? Curb, thank you, by the curb, um, was smashed glass from car break-ins. And this person went along and swept them all up and cleaned them and polished them all and put them in little velvet pockets and sold them as Peckham diamonds. <laughs> Isn't that genius? <laughs> what a wonderful thing. That is prophetic imagination that where we see crime and devastation, actually here is beauty and hope. I had to interview as part of my uh, research a, a woman. It was just such an inspiring conversation I had with her across Zoom called Rachel Summers. And she was uh, a mum with two young kids, in, or she is, in Walthamstow. She works for a church part of her time. And she told me this amazing story about how she would... Uh, do the walk that if you've got kids you will know uh, that you occasionally have to do where you just run out of patience and you stick them in the buggy and you just walk. We've all done that. I remember those things. Just try and get off to sleep or just let your partner have a break. And she said that she basically did this walk around her community. And then one day the child just wouldn't settle so the walk was a bit longer than she normally went. And she kind of went to the edge of her patch into a bit that she'd never been to before. And it kind of got seedier and seedier, and there was a, uh, an industrial estate. But then she noticed at the end of this little dead end a patch of land. And she took the buggy into it, and she looked, and she saw needles, and she saw evidence of people who had slept in, in the woods. And she just knew nothing about it. No one had ever talked about this thing. Really, you know, within walking distance of her house. And she began to talk to her and said, do you know that patch of land? People, all the neighbours, people live there for decades and decades going, oh, don't, we don't know what you're talking about. Well, you know what, by B&Q, we know B&Q. There's a patch of land there. Don't know there's a patch of land there. And she got some people and she went up there and she spoke to the council and she said, who owns this piece of land? And they said, oh, it's a protected area of natural habitat. And the council had forgotten about it. So she said, well, could we protect it? <laughs> could we do something with it? And they said, fill your boots. So she went and they cleared it up. And, they, and uh, now there are all kinds of activities happening in Walthamstow in this piece of land that still drug users use and homeless people sleeping. But she said, even those people have become part of our community. And families and children go and they are making it more beautiful and peaceful. And they do activities there. That is prophetic imagination. Where you look with your eyes and see something that looks desecrated. But if you allow yourself to imagine heaven open and angels ascending and descending on this bit of scrubland that everyone else has forgotten about, suddenly you see a place of hope and a purpose and a beauty. And that's what it looks like to reconsecrate everything. And what stops prophetic imagination? Fear. This is my, this is my moment that I learned something myself today as I thought about this. Why is it that some people have imagination and other people don't? It's not, I don't think it's a gift. 
I don't believe in that at all. I think every single person in this room has an imagination that can change situations if you allow it. But we are gripped by fear. The first sort of fear we have is a fear of God. I think this, is, this could be a teaching series of, in and of itself, the fear of God. It's quite a strong theme in the Bible. And people have spoken to me about it. Well, you know, what does it mean to fear God? I think fundamentally we've got it wrong very often. We have taught the fear of God in the way that we use fear most often. That God is, is some, some entity to be fearful of. In the Psalms we read about the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I want to be wise. So what is, it, what is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of God. And this image of an angry God that we should be fearful of cannot be the right understanding of God. And I say that confidently because of what we just did earlier. That Jesus says, and the Bible says, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus, look at his son. In fact, I can give you the verses. From the beginning... We look at this son and see the God who cannot be seen. This is from Colossians chapter 1. We look at this son and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, hearing again, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and he holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there. Think about these holy moments. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above Everything, everyone, and this is the bit I love. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down. Beautiful, profound verses that are not in the future tense. He's not saying everything will get sorted in the end because of the blood of Christ. He's saying everything is finding their place now. If you just had the imagination to believe it. If you just had the imagination to see it. The fear of God, I think, is the fear of how much you are loved and how free you are to do anything you want to do. That, for me, is the fear of God. God frightens me because he is so kind to me. He frightens me because my safe life becomes suddenly a little bit less safe when I think I'm called into transformation. This woman, Rachel, who sees these woods and takes this risk, there must have been part of her that thought, people are going to think I'm nuts. Who's going to want to take their kids to to this? But she had the imagination because the fear of God is the fear that maybe if you try, you might just succeed. Maybe if you try, things don't have to be the way they are. The political system in our country at the minute is an absolute mess. I've never made such an understatement from the pulpit in my whole life. But the fear of God is that maybe I, maybe you, are supposed to do something about it. 
I think that's what's fearful, is that God says there is another way. There's another way possible. You could have your own economy within this community. You could go and look at the book of Acts, and you could see what happens when the Holy Spirit comes, where it says none of them were in need. Because where one was in need, somebody sold a field that they had, where they fed one another, where they met and shared food together, and suddenly it looks like heaven has opened up. And a bit of heaven has come on earth. Because you don't have to live in that structure out there that is evil, that keeps people in poverty, that keeps rich people richer, where the odds are against them, where there is no justice. You don't have to live in that system. If you feared that God loved you enough, trusted you enough, gave you enough imagination to view a different world, then a different world becomes possible. That's the fear. And we're also fearful of other people. What will they think? What will they think? That's why I admire people like Peter so much. In an understated way, he goes against the whole of his community and says, no, no, no. This message is for everybody. Him and Paul and others have these big rows. They have to hold this big council. And Mark and Barnabas, all these people get involved and they're all arguing about it. And Peter says, no. I love you, but this is what I've got to do. And the ability for us to say, I love you, but I'm going to do something different than you are telling me I should do, is the way that the world changes. That is to how to re-consecrate everything. I need to finish. And we're going to finish with the band. Ah, no band. <laughs> We've just got to finish. Fran's going to finish for us. So I'm going to pray. Uh, and then Fran's going to sing to us. Um, Really summarizing everything I've just said. It's going to be great. But think about that. Is there anything in your life right now? Is there another person? Is there another system? Is there a situation in your workplace that you could reconsecrate? Is there something that you could do that might just open heaven up to somebody? An act of kindness. An act of rebellion are saying, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. There's all kinds of things. Change your bank account. Plant a tree. There's all kinds of things where you can re-consecrate that thing because you've informed yourself. You have a better imagination for what your money can do, for what your time can do, to what your love and care, to the home that you live in. Could it become a place of hope and freedom and kindness? Because you open it. The church has become so small and narrow. Christian music, Christian behavior, Christian ways. When actually the whole universe is yours to enjoy and explore. And to be blessed by. Because that is the God who loves us. Dear God, I pray for myself as much as I pray for anybody here. That you would show us ways that we can be bring liberation and kindness and peace for ways that we can open heaven and people get to experience what life we believe will be like in eternity but is breaking in right now. God, I pray for places that we know, desecrated places, places that are supposed to be just institutions that are supposed to stand up for the poor, governments that are supposed to govern with equity, 
God, give us the imagination to believe that there is another way. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that you haven't run out of optimism or hope. That every place is sacred if we allow it to become it. Help us to know the people and the places and the ways to make that happen, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.